Dear Jesus, thank you again for this day. And as we open up your word, I pray, Lord, you'll help us see the beauty of who you are in the old and in the new. And that you call us to have an unwavering faith because you love us. Not because we have it all together, not because we have it all figured out, but because you came and rescued us so that we trust you with everything. We love you. Amen. So if you open up Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17, this is right after Abraham has, Abram, sorry, continued. So we finally get there, and then I'll read two names. Um, He's taken his 318 men, he's gone and rescued Lot and all the captives taken as kings ran around the Dead Sea from um, Babylon and the Tiger Street River Valley. So those kings came together, fought the kings down along the, the east side of the Dead Sea. They traveled back around, Lot goes and rescues them, and then this moment happened. Some scholars argue this happened kind of in the middle of this whole fight and this whole thing, that it's not um, after this, the, the, his return after the defeat, I think in my head I've always thought that this was after he does the defeat up by Dan, we showed, showed the map last week, that he goes back to his spot, and then that's where it happened. Then he returned to this spot. Some argue that it happened right after the defeat, like he's, his armies are resting, there's a tent, and this king comes in, the king of Salem comes in this moment, blesses Abram, and then he goes home. I don't know that it really matters. Um, I think it, it adds some, either way, it makes a really beautiful story of right after this tension is released, right after he's um, had this amazing moment where he's rescued these people, you can imagine the gratitude they have for him, and then this king arrives and blesses him, but then also gives him a little insight. Or it could be after this journey back down to his home with these people, he has time to reflect, time to think, and then... I don't know that it really matters, but kind of a true joint. So, after his return from the defeat, I'm just going to call him Cheddar. That sounds easier for me. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So there's this moment that happens where this priest king of Salem named Melchizedek shows up on the scene and says, Hey, you did awesome. But he brings in this, he brings in elements, he brings in a blessing, he brings in a little bit of, not correction, but make sure you know your place. And then we'll continue on. We see the beginning of Abram giving a tenth to this priest. We see the beginnings, the very beginning of the Levitical priesthood pops up in this moment. We see even what we would call today in a lot of churches, not every, in a lot of Baptist churches, it's pretty common that a tenth of your income is your tithe and anything above and beyond that is an offering. So you get the understanding of the tenth or fruits. All this stuff is happening in this moment. That's not fleshed out here, and it gets turned into a couple other different things, but in this moment you have some of the very beginnings of the stuff that we are still carrying with us as people of faith. So this king, Salem, Melchizedek, shows up 
He's a king and a priest. That's not been seen yet. Where you have a king and a priest show up and come to this place, and what's he bring with him? Bread and wine. Hmm. Do we ever do anything with bread and wine anymore in the church? Like just maybe ten minutes ago? I mean, it wasn't wine, but it was juice. But that's, you know, you have wine at home. And then we see this moment where he says, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your So, how did Abraham defeat the 318 people, the kings that were raiding all around? It was because God did. So he's giving him some hints in there. Hey, this was an act of God. We, Trinity, did this. This is part of the God Most High allowing this to happen. It's part of his story, not yours. Don't get so full of yourself. Don't. Right? We're all tools. We're all instruments. We're all being equipped to be used by God in a multitude of ways. And this is being reiterated even here. Because can you imagine the swagger that you would have? You just led 318 guys who aren't really trained soldiers. They're trained, but they're kind of like the Minutemen of your ranch. And you show up and you wipe out four kings, you defeat them, you rescue people. There's going to be a little bit of you going, I'm pretty cool. You might do the, the sports thing where you like hit your chest and point to the heavens and but really, like you put in the hard work, you know what you did. There's a little bit of swagger that could happen. And Melchizedek shows up in this loving, caring way to say, done great. Let's implement some new things. The priest king shows up. And then sit down and have a meal. Bless it with bread, with wine. This wouldn't be just a quick thing like we do. This would have been an extended time. I would love to hear the conversation. Abram had Beautiful. We also see the introduction of the beginning of different names. Abraham by God Most High. And I'm there. We know that the Creator. We know that there's the Creator God Elohim. And now we see the God Most High Elion. El Elion. Wrong. And then we're going to see a, a continued introduction of these different names of God. We have them out on the wall. Because Notice that ever in their fear. And each one of these begins to represent in the people the, all the different levels of relationship that we have with God. And the story is being told so that we would understand that He is our everything. Do you imagine the pantheon of gods that exist in the Canaanite? What's happening? I mean, most of you are familiar with Greek and Roman gods, which a little later than this. But you understand that there was a God for every little thing. And they had all these different people. And even today in Hinduism, you have all these different gods for all these different things. And you're beginning to see the very character and nature of God as everything laid out in all the names of God. It's not that you have to memorize all They're not nicknames. They're embodiments of who he is. And we see this over and over and over again. We're going we're gonna to start seeing more and more of these names for the character of who he is, because how, how unexplainable is our God? Can you wrap him up and put him in a tight little package? No, you can't. So our inability to fathom is then turned into real, easy, simple, beautiful ways for us to be able to wrap our minds and hearts around all of God. So we see not just God creator, Genesis 1, we now see God most high. And we're going to continue to see all these names of God play out throughout the text. 
And it's ways for us to connect to that moment. This is saying he's not just the creator, and then just takes a distant step back, lets it all happen. Some of the Enlightenment philosophers, Voltaire's clockmaker theory of God made it all, wound the clock, put on the mantle, and he had no interaction with us at all. A lot of the founding fathers of our country believe in that, kind of deists in that way. He just takes a step back. And we're seeing, no, he's the God on pot. He's everything. We then see a continuation problem. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the kings of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what you, but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. So we're also seeing this kind of, after this blessing happened, there's a, there's a difference in Abram. Most kings get to take spoil. So what you're seeing here is an exchange between the king of Sodom and Abram, who's king of Sodom essentially saying, I'm now subject to you. You did this. You rescued me. You take all that you want. What does Abram say? Uh, no. I promised to Melchizedek. I promised in this moment. I promise that we're going to do it this way. I had this moment with God. It was delivered to me. I don't need any of this. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. That's not like what happened in this time and place. When you conquer an enemy, you get it all. And Abram said, nope, I didn't do this for spoils. I didn't do this for riches. I didn't do it for that. I did it because God delivered them. He now, I wonder, and this is just me, it's 100% me, no commentary, no scholar. If that moment with Melchizedek hadn't happened, this. Or would he have said, Yeah, that's mine. I want this. Dead with that. And in this moment of grace and beauty and setting apart the people of God to be different than the rest of the world that's around them, just think of how that story is going to be shared. When all of these people are expecting now to be the person, be subject to Abram himself, they're now moving back home. They're set free to just go back home. And that story would have spread throughout all of those people. Yeah, Abram, the follower of this different God, he doesn't follow a Canaanite God, he doesn't follow, and then think about the king of Sodom going back. We're going to see what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah in a bit. People of God, Abram, the leader of the people of God, of Yahweh, is not. He didn't take the spoils. He's not doing this to gain. He's doing it to honor God. We're the continued separating and dividing of people who follow God, who follow Jesus, and the rest of the world, seeing these things happen. Culture is being broken in a lot of ways by God, for the good of us all. So those names, here's a lot of them. I won't say them all. It's very similar to what's out on the wall. And you'll see this pop up in hymns, worship songs, conversation. The character of God, his very essence, expressed. Like, can you imagine if we did that with each other? Like, does Mike encompass everything that is me? 
I don't think so. I mean, it's a pretty awesome name, right, Mike? But, Mike, right. But there's, there's a lot to who we are. There's a lot to, and so if you try to describe someone and all the things that they are, it's not just going to be your name. It's going to be your character trait. Well, we're seeing that laid out in the names of God. And Abram gave a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said, oh, we already did that, sorry. So, how, I'm going to lay a bit of my foundation, and we're going to go through fast, because I don't want to do forever, because I'm right. Melchizedek in the Old Testament pops up in Genesis 14, Psalm 110. We see Melchizedek in Jesus in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. I'm going to show you that. And we see Jesus as the high priest in Hebrews 7, 11 to 28. Now, I, I'm not in a minority, but we can disagree on this and we can still be friends. I think Paul wrote the book. A lot of people disagree. Some people don't want to make that claim because he doesn't name himself as an author. I always just thought it's because um, it just was lost. It, was, it just made sense when you read it out, the logic. It just seems to be very Pauline in its writing. It reads like the rest. And then I started thinking about this week a little bit about Paul's story and the story of Melchizedek. So here's Paul, a, a Jew among Jews, a man from the Pharisee order, a man who knew the word in and out, who was a, an amazing teacher of the word of God. For his early life, especially when Jesus enters and the, and the disciples are around, he's persecuting them because he sees them as an affront to his faith. And he wants them gone. He then has his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He encounters Jesus. He's blinded. His eyes are open. We know that he then spends about three years at the base of a mountain, hanging out with people to be taken care of, and he's relearning all of the scriptures in light of Jesus. So he's, he's unpacking his entire life. Everything he held dear is now seen through a completely different lens. So now this man is going to see Melchizedek as not just King of Salem. He's going to see Melchizedek as holy. That's him. So when we read here in a second, Hebrews 7, I want you to, because the book of Hebrews is a masterful letter written to Jews to help them see that the faith they're following is pointing to Jesus and the Messiah has already been. It's not a far off Messiah. So you, I think when you read the book of Hebrews, you see this, this love and compassion for his own folk, kinfolk, I mean, people, to have their eyes open like his were. So when you see this super logical, masterful explanation of all these things, think of it as a man who fought against the people he now loves, who raged against the king he now calls friend, and he wants everyone to see that. So Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, Most High God, met Abraham, not Abram, but, but we get past that, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So you have Salem and Melchizedek, righteous peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having never, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. 
And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers. So they are descended. They are descended. These also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met. So, Saul the Melchizedek. And Paul is laying out, this is why. He's not just saying, hey, can't you see it? I mean, come on, communion? Dude, it's right there. He's not saying that. He's, he's beautifully laying out that the foundations of the faith that you have as Jews in the Levitical, in the priesthood, is all pointed to Jesus. And you can just, I mean, I, it feels kind of like how uh, when I go home and talk to my family, I've been walking with Jesus since I was 17. My family has dabbled with Jesus a little here and there over the years. My dad does. My dad and mom both profess a faith, but I don't see a lot of fruit in like faithful churchy things. I see in a lot of the service they commit. I see in in the conversations I have with them. I know they pray, but so sometimes I'm just like, Ugh, I want to make sure my mom and dad. I want them to. You know, I want them to be there. And so when I go home and talk to them, or they ask me faith questions, or they're asking for advice, which is also weird to have your 70-year-old parents asking for advice on life stuff, medical things, I, I have this burning in me. I want them to grab, I just, I just want them to be there. I want them to feel the love that God has for them in so many ways. So when, when I read like, Paul writing to Come on, Melchizedek, Jesus, you're right there. You're so close to understanding everything. So, that's my answer. Okay. Melchizedek is the image of Christ in the Old Testament, seen as a mystery to all Jews, and I think he is the one solution to the riddle of who is. I don't mind any other logic. We can try, and I'm not, I mean, we're not going to fight over it, but Melchizedek. Now we get to 15, and the reason why I think this matters in the narrative arc, Abram has done a great disservice to his wife. That's clearly an affront to God. So then he comes back, he humbles himself, he's at the altar, he then is used by God in that humility to be used to rescue people. That's the beginnings of the name of God being made famous amongst the whole land. The promise that was given in chapter 12 that he would be the father of nations, that from him would come the seed who is Jesus. If all of these things are happening. And then this moment where we're having the priest Melchizedek show up and say, you're blessed. You're on the right path. You're doing it. You're honoring God. with. You're getting it. I'm here with you. I bless you. I'm the God Most High up here. And then we have this moment where we're starting to see Abram as a prophet. He has some vision. He also, we see the humanity 
of Abram come in this moment. Because this is the first time we see Abram talk back to God. Or not talk back, but talk to God. All we've seen is God tell Abram to do this. And he does it. And so this, what, in my brain goes to what changed? What changed? Because it. Jesus arrived in the scene in person with Abram, a, a moving toward creation. God moving toward his rebel. God not just saying, do this, but entering into the life, entering that space, breaking bread, being near with Abram, and then that gives him the comfort, gives him the, the trust. But I can ask these big questions. Not because I got it all figured out, not because I'm just going to do what you say, but because we're connected. And I can trust. After these things, meaning Melchizedek, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue... For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar, no, Eleazar, sorry, there, Eleazar, of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as right. So there's been these promises. The covenant was made with Abraham in chapter 12. Sometimes people, I mean, I think even this Bible. Chapter 15, God's covenant with Abraham. It's already been made. He's already said this. But it's being reiterated. I think I don't even think it's reiterated. I think this is the honest, gut, reality of all of our lives. God made a promise, and it isn't happening. And this is the first time we see Abram question. Said, you give me children. But I continue childless. Serving you, I'm trying, I've failed, I've come to the altar, I'm but you just feel the pain. Well, how's this gonna happen, God? I've got a got a nephew, someone in my household, I got a relative, but I don't have a child. So what am I gonna do? So he takes him outside. This is almost like a, a moment with uh Joe. You read the book of Job, and it's a painful, hard book to read sometimes. And there's that where it turns at the end, and God says, Okay, get ready. It's okay to question. That, please don't hear me say that you can't doubt God, you can't question. This, this is giving us a picture perfect example of it's okay. In the middle of your faithful following of the Lord, you have a relationship with it. This is so different than anything that's happening this time in history. If you study Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you study other world religions, you don't question God or the gods or whatever you're thinking. And so you see this relationship with Melchizedek opens the door for us to have a personal 
defining love relationship with the one who made them. So Abram says, really, God? He said I'd have kids. That was a while ago. Still hasn't happened. I'm in my 80s. Don't see many kids being born from 80-year-olds. What are you doing here, Lord? And then God takes him out. Doesn't say, hey, can you just be patient? I got you. It's going to happen. He takes him outside and says, hey, can you number the stars? Can you count them? Yeah, well, I kind of made them. Settle down there, buddy. I got this. It's in my timing, not yours. I'm paraphrasing. not in the Bible. Look toward the heaven, number the stars, if you can. So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And counted him as right. Did he not believe the Lord before this? Is this Abram's faith? Or is this God's faith in Abram? I thought about that all week. Because I think a lot of times I would read this and go, God, the man of that's what we see in Abram. He's the guy. God gave him an answer, and he's going to run with it. He believed the Lord. He counted it to him as right. Abram believed the Lord. God counted it to Abram as right. Or, Abram believed the Lord. And Abram counted it to God as right. I did a word search. Hell, I don't. Could be my own. Who's the faith? God, the one. Isn't God the one who's showing Himself? It asks. It raises all these questions. He has little to have hope in what God is going to do. And yet he trusted in that moment. Did he produce any fruit from this? Like the logical response would be, God in this moment goes, take God. Right? Isn't that what we would, that would be, that's how you'd write the movie. That's not what happened. And this is God being faithful to uh, no matter our questions, our doubts, he tells us to do something, he asks something of us, we feel led in a certain direction, and it doesn't seem to be going right. We, have no, we don't see the end in near. We're not sure what's going on. What are you doing, Lord? I don't get it. But I'm going to trust you. And then there's a trust in us. He has for us. As we walk this path, not all the answers, living in the mystery of a lot of the day-to-day of life, Trust us with it. That's kind of beautiful. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur. This is kind of a Job moment. Here we are. Brought you out of out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. Now this, this is all in a vision. The word of the Lord coming. We have a, he goes to sleep again. I think it's the second vision. I'm not so sure. Some would argue the first part is awake for this. But when the word of the Lord comes, it's usually when you see that popping up, vision, an image. To, so is this a literal? I'm not, I could be. I don't know. But what I do know is culturally what's happening here is there's a, there's a practice of cutting an animal in half and making a blood oath. That you would separate, you'd bring an animal, you'd cut it in half, and you'd separate the parts so all the entrails and blood are in the middle, and then you walk through and make a blood oath with the person who makes the pack. We assume all of that. But it doesn't say God walked through it. God doesn't say all of those things. Bring me a heifer, a female goat, and a ram, a turtle, and a pigeon. And he brought all of them, cut them in half, I don't, I don't see the command there to do that. So I'm confused. It makes logical sense that Abram's going to follow the traditions of all the Canaanite gods, the beginnings of, or the, of the Canaanite people. It's happening culturally all around. You'd have the blood covenant, the blood bond made. It makes sense for this to be turned into, well, this is where we're going to have the blood sacrifice of Jesus, but we don't see him cut in half. Like, there's, I'm just, Telling you that there's a lot of theories in this. Because if I'm just going to read the Word of God and I'm going to read it right here in front of me, He says, Bring those. We see the implementation of sacrifice happen with the ark, Noah. We've already seen this happen. So that we've already seen the tradition of and the beginnings of sacrifice of pure animals leading to us to understand that Jesus is the only one that is the pure sacrifice. I get that part. I get the bloody altar. I get all of those things, bringing them to the temple. I get all of that. But this part of bringing the animals and then Abram immediately goes to set, cutting them in half. But he saves the turtle dove and the pigeon. He doesn't cut them in half. Now the commentary, one of the commentaries I read said that the turtle dove and the pigeon represent the people that protect them. He didn't cut those in half. They're not sacrificed. Later on, birds are sacrificed at the altar. That's not logical. I read an ancient, it was a, in the ancient Christian commentary, uh, one of two persons in there um, said that this was just a continuation. It was a, a cultural connection that God was using what was happening culturally all around to do the same thing, to try to supplant the animal sacrifices that are happening in the region. So if I make a blood bond with you, we cut a calf in half, and separate it, we walk through, make a pact with each other. This was God using that cultural thing over here and then bringing it and saying, no, this is about faith in God. I'm lacking in all of it. I'm not settled. So if you have a good theory and you want to help me with it later, okay. But then we get this picture. When the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. That part I get. Sacrifice to God is not meant to be food of the carrier. It's not the food of the prey. It's a sacrifice to God. So it would be burnt on an altar, it would be taken up, it would be used, it wouldn't be 
You don't just let you don't let crack. This isn't some guttural. This isn't rope. This is a pact bond sacrifice between Abram and God. Now, if this is just a reiteration of what we're already seeing, like when we see the the image of Jesus coming in Revelation, when he has a robe dipped in blood, the edge of the robe is coming back. Is that the image of sacrifice, walking in blood? Is that kind of what's happening here? I'm not sure. I landed that this was just an obvious blood sacrifice on like Tuesday. As I kept reading and praying about it, it doesn't settle in my heart. What I do see is that God says, bring me sacrifice. Bring me a sacrifice. That we're going to have a covenant bond in blood in this moment. Foreshadowing what's coming. The three-year-old heifer, the three-year-old, three-year-old, three years ministry, Trinity, is it lots of, I don't know that we're meant to know. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So he has another vision. So this is what we're getting set up as Abram has not just this leader, he's a prophet. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and dark and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites not yet. Giving him a prophetic vision of the future. People are going to be captured. People are going to go away. They're going to be sojourners in the land that's not theirs. I'm going to rescue them. You're not going to see this. But it's coming. It's happening. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these people. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of Kenites, the land of the Kenizzites, the land of Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Raphaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Jergeshite, and the Jebusites. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your offspring. Smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these. Is that the piece? Say yes. Pot? Flaming torch? What's that remind you of? Vision he's having. Reminding you. A little bit of revelation. A little bit of sacrifice, a little bit of pots with incense, a little bit of... That's what gives me visions of. So I think the dividings of the heifer, the dividings of the ram, or the the animals, and I think that that three-year, the division, is leading us more towards visions of revelation, more towards the burnings of incense, more towards, instead of just this walk between the animals, blood bond. 
And then he says, on that day, your offspring get this land. From Egypt to the Tigris Euphrates, north, south, you get it all. To this day, what land is plotted? Some of you, I don't remember because I wasn't born. But the Seven Day War, how many times Israel has been attacked, how many times it's been from Egypt to Iraq, north, south, over and over and over again. So if you read these passages as a Jew, not believing in Melchizedek as a great high priest, wouldn't you go, hey, that's my land? So we're fighting for it. The ancient battle fight. I'm not saying, I'm not taking a political stance what should or should be done. But you can't just brush it away and go, do all this get along? It's been some issue in the life of It doesn't go away or it or. So for us, what do we grab from this? I think a couple things. Number one, I want you to see the Bible is a storybook. We have storybook Bibles in the the office, um, and it traces Jesus from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I've read it to, well, I haven't read it to my kids in a while. They're a little older. But I read it to them every year for like five years in a row. Um, I've given it out to adults. Do not, when you see it as a children's book, do not look at it that way. You struggle with seeing Jesus in the whole Bible. This is required reading camp ministries I know of. You go on staff with them. You have to read this. Um, it is a beautiful picture of Jesus throughout all of Scripture in a very poetic way. You struggle with that understanding that from Genesis three to the end of Revelation, it's not just the thread of Jesus. Everything. Then I would get that book out of the library. Show it to you. Beautiful. Secondly, I want you to get this compact understanding. Created in God's image, broken by sin, and we grow more like Christ. Isn't that Abram's story? Created, sinful guy. We're going to see that over and over again in fact. He has this, I mean, he has this moment with Melchizedek. He has this moment with God and this vision. God is speaking to him back. They're growing in relationship. Still failed. It's like all of us. But God's faith in him staying. God has faith in us. We have faith in him. There's a lot of times when, when I have moments not following God with my everything. I get really down on myself. You should know better what you're doing. How dare you? Come on, Mike. What is your problem? You've been down this road before. Why are you dumb? It's all those I get really down. And then God usually puts me back up. Because in that moment of self-deprecation, that moment of not feeling like I measure up, he reminds me through people, through books, through the Word, through all kinds of circumstances, he reminds me that he's still God. 
And then on really awesome days, I believe deep in my soul that he actually likes to be around me. He's not going back, well, I made this stupid covenant with Abram and now I can't let you go. You're the one. If I could just learn how to break a promise, you're the guy I'd like to break the promise. That's not how God's at all. When we step into that moment of faith with Jesus, every and we're seeing that moment, those moments right now with the life of Abram. Sat down with Melchizedek. Everything changed. Did he still struggle and doubt and have questions? Yeah, but look what how God starts to use him. He throws his doubt. God answers. Not in mean ways. He gives it to him. He reiterates the promises he's made through visions that he can understand. He can start to grasp. We start to see his name being called in different ways for us to understand. So you're starting to see in the narrative this great high God that made everything and said things, and we can all go, oh, wow. And then now you're down to this place where with. Not that he never was. Not that he wasn't with Noah and the ark. He wasn't with his descendants. He wasn't there. Now you're starting to see this intimacy happen. God, Abram, and that carried on into us. And in greater and greater ways, fall in love with him. Then he begins to trust us, trust him, gives us more as we give ourselves more. Last comment. I have a couple things to read out of my notes. Abram's unwavering faith is a striking example of how we too should trust God unwavering. And the question is, doesn't he seem to make the impossible possible? Is that kind of his way? So you can't, you have no other response. How did that, God? Why did that, I don't know, it wasn't me, it was him. I didn't do it. How did that get restored? How did that get fixed? How did that get reconciled? How did that... What's me? I didn't cut animals half put blood on the floor. That was Jesus. That wasn't me. We see how he makes everything come together for his good in Romans 8.28. We're asked to believe in the Lord Jesus and we will be saved in Acts 16. And then so most of us, or a lot of us, I don't know, maybe me, ask, is that it? We've got this whole history stuff. All I have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and count it as right. Abram? No matter what has happened, what you have done, what's been done to you, what you think, all your doubts, simple, trusting, loving moment of saying, I don't have all the answers. Love everything that I am. There's going to be days I'm going to push you away. There's going to be days I'm going to question. There's going to be days that I'm not sure about all this. But I know you to be true. Trust. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to find perfection. Understanding the end of yourself. All He's our creator. God will tie. He is the lover of our soul. Wants to be with From the moments of quiet, breaking bread, sharing wine, big parts of our lives, we're just 
give them all. Is there an all of them? No. Trust. Great. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together as a church family, celebrating through worship and through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. You'd help us to feel your love. I know that's a Bob Dylan song, but that's what came to mind. Help us to feel your love, Lord. There's so many things that push and pull us in so many directions. There's so many things that temptations that dangle right in front of us. There's so many things that break our hearts. So I pray that you'll help us to feel your love. See it in the example that you have given us in your word with Abram. And I pray that you would continue to show us how much you love us in our everyday life. Help us to have moments of great solitude and quiet where we sit with you. So that when it's busy and chaotic, things are going all over the place. Trust me. Help us be built up by you so we can build up others as well. We love you. Amen. During this last song of uh, worship, if any of you have